Hello, welcome to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoon. My name is Helen Mully, and the author joining you in your classroom or wherever you're listening is someone who really, really does not need an introduction from me, but I'm going to do one anyway because I can. He is one of the UK's best loved writers whose poems, stories, essays, blogs, broadcasts and more have been bringing joy to children and adults alike for nearly half a century. He was doing school visits before school visits were a thing and if anyone listening hasn't at some point in their life recited the words of we're going on a bear hunt out loud well I recommend you pause the podcast right now go and find yourself a copy and do it immediately because I promise it will make you more happy than you can possibly imagine. He also has very many important and interesting things to say about the way we learn to read and write both in school and out of it, as well as the way we, and by we, I mostly mean grown-ups, treat each other. He's one of my heroes and I am so thrilled to be talking to him today. Welcome to the podcast, Michael Rosen. Well, thanks for having me, Helen. Thank you. It is absolutely our pleasure. Um, Michael, before we dive properly into the world of your words, I know that many, many of our listeners will remember that last year you you were very poorly indeed, and we all cheered when you came home. I know they'll want me to give you their best wishes, but also ask, how, how are you doing now? Uh, I'm pretty okay. When you get a really serious illness like this, then there are always, um, how can I put it, results or um, things that carry on. So I lost a lot of the sight in my left eye, most of the hearing from my left ear, and rather strangely, quite a bit of feeling from my toes. So we're used to the idea that our toes are really a bit like our fingers. We can sort of feel our way across the ground. And even when we've got shoes on, we're feeling, uh, well, it helps with our balance and that sort of thing. And I've lost the feeling in my toes. And then there's various other little bits and pieces, like uh, I'm probably not as strong as I used to be. I do borrow my teenage son's punch bag, put on his boxing gloves and um, punch the punch bag. He laughs. He doesn't think I'm very good at that. <laughs> um, so I do things to try and get stronger. So uh, I can't work out whether I'm weaker than I was or as weak as I would be given that I'm very nearly 75. So I have kind of weak calculations. <laughs> well, in either case, Michael, we hope you carry on going from strength to strength and I'm sure you will. Michael, I think it's fair to say that you have written, by any standards, a lot of books about a lot of different subjects. I I counted well over 200 listed on your website. And what I wanted to ask you was, did you write all of those books because they were things that you wanted to write about? Or were any of them things that people told you to write about? Mm, I think most of them were things that I decided I would write. But after you've written a good few books, what happens is people who make books, publishers, they do sometimes say, hey, have you ever thought of writing this? Or there might be something like an exhibition in a museum uh, or a place like a museum, and they maybe want a book to come out that goes with that. So for example, in London, we have a place called the Welcome Trust, and they've got a big exhibition space, and they were doing an exhibition about play, how we have created this thing called play, we human beings, that is. And they said they wanted a book to go with it. 
So they got in touch with me and said, would you write us a book of play? So I said, that sounds very interesting. So I did. I wrote a book about play. Now, I don't think if I hadn't had that contact, if they hadn't got in touch with me, I don't think I would have written that. So that would be an example of it being suggested that I do it. I could have said, no, I know children in schools, You, if a teacher says, hey, look, today we're going to write about trees, you can't go, no, I don't think I will, actually. <laughs> you know, that's not sort of how it works. So I, I could have decided then and there, shall I write the book about play? Hmm, I think I will. And I have sometimes been asked to write things and I have said, no, I don't think I will do that. But most of the books that you'll find uh, that I've been writing since, well, my very first book came out in 1969, I think. So what's that? That's 51 years ago, 52 years ago. Most of the books that I've written, uh, I wrote because I thought, oh, I'm going to write that. Yes. What a good idea. <laughs> you have to say, what a good idea. It does sound a bit sort of, you know, boastful, but you have to kind of G yourself up a, bit, a little bit like a jockey on a horse. And you have to say, come on, Michael, let's do that. Yeah, that's quite <laughs> a good idea. And then you get on with it. That's exactly what I was thinking, that, that our listeners sitting there in their classroom in school they can't just say, well, no, actually, I don't fancy writing that today. And I wondered if you had any advice for someone who maybe has been told or, or encouraged to write something and maybe isn't quite feeling it. Right. Well, obviously, it depends on which, and the word we use here for this is genre. Okay, I'll spell that G-E-N-R-E. So that's a French word. And it really means kind or type. So if we're asked to write uh, what some people call a recount, so that means, let's say you go for a trip to a castle and then you come back to the classroom and you're going to write about your trip. That's slightly different from trying to think up a story or think up a poem or a book review or maybe something where you've got to persuade somebody or maybe you've got to do an argument, an argument in favour of let's say, abolishing fox hunting or something like that. So these are all what are called different genres. So I'm going to answer your question by saying, well, it depends what the genre is. Right. So that's sort of batting you away a little bit, not answering <laughs> your question. But in the area that's mostly to do with imaginative things, where we, we, we've got to imagine stuff as opposed to something that really happened, then the tip that my dad gave me um, so this goes back a long time to when I was, when I was, oh, I don't know, about 10, 11 and 12. He would say, remember to make it personal. And what he meant by that was bring in your own personal experience, the things you've seen and heard and thought about and smelt or touched using your senses, using your thoughts, using your dreams. Bring that in because everyone's a bit different. And if you want to make something interesting, Use that. Use what you remember. Use what you heard people say. Use what you said. So if you get a subject, and in, in my day when I was at school, we used to have to do what were called compositions. Composition was also used to describe artificial cricket balls. So it was a bit funny. You wrote a composition and you also had a cricket ball <laughs> and you had to decide which. But sometimes the teachers would give you a subject. So the subject might be trees. Now, you know, you could begin a piece of writing about trees by saying something like, there are many kinds of trees and some are tall and some are small and some go out wide and some are very narrow and there are evergreens and there are uh, deciduous trees. And 
it's quite hard to stay awake reading that sort of thing. <laughs> but if you begin writing about trees by going, I remember when I was on holiday and we strung up a swing from the lowest branch of the tree on our campsite and I fell off the swing and, you know, and you're talking about a tree that was in your life and what people said about the tree and then maybe your imagination as you looked up into the tree and saw the light and through the tree. And then you could go into the fact that, but there are other trees and you know some trees in your friend's garden and so on. So the trick in a lot of writing to make it interesting is just as my dear old dad said all those years ago, make it personal. When it comes to imaginative writing, it's going to possibly be personal anyway, or at least you're using your personal imagination. So I, my other tip always is daydream. Now, that's kind of weird, really, isn't it? Because we think of school as being busy and writing and listening and so on. But actually daydreaming is very good because when you daydream, what you do is you go into your own mind. You can shut your eyes. I find that helps. And then you just sit for maybe 10 seconds, 20 seconds, even a minute and daydream. And then when you come out of the daydream, you jot down some notes. So what you've got is a piece of paper. It's best with a piece of paper, actually, next to you, something to write with. So you sit there and you daydream. Let's let it go. Let all the thoughts happen. Maybe you've got a subject. Maybe you're going to write a story about a dragon. So then daydream about dragons. Maybe you're going to write a poem about breakfast. Daydream about breakfast. Yeah. Give it a good space of time. I'd say up to a minute. And then the moment you stop daydreaming, scribble. Get down. And you don't have to write in sentences when you scribble. You can just write single words raining, worried, sad, doesn't matter. You just jot them down. Uh, Mum's face, frowning, um, dragon outside, anything like that. You see, those are what we call phrases. So you can jot down phrases or single words, or maybe there might be a whole string of words that come to your mind. Dragon fire pouring out of its mouth. Dragon fire pouring out of its mouth. So you scribble all these things down. And now you've got a page full of scribbles. Now this, this is your food for your writing. Because you can take any of those and play with them. You could repeat them. You can put them into sentences. You can put them into what we call paragraphs, as you know. All right. But that stuff that you've got on the page, that's the food that is going to, it's the kind of energy, if you like, that you're going to use for your writing. That is such brilliant advice. And I know that our listeners are going to be itching to put it into action straight away. But I'm going to suggest they stay with us for a bit longer and listen because we've got lots more to talk about. And one of the things I really want to talk about, Michael, is your your recent collection of poetry called On the Move. And I think the best way to start talking about that would be if you would be so kind for you to read a poem from that collection for us. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pause the recording for a minute while you grab your copy of the book and find the right page and then we'll be back to start talking about On The Move.
Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoom with our very special guest for this episode, Michael Rosen. Michael, you're going to read for us now a poem from your collection, On the Move, which is subtitled Poems About Migration. Is there anything you'd like to tell the listeners about it before you start or are you going to launch in and then we'll talk about it afterwards? Yeah, I'll just say a little bit. Great. And it's, it's really quite simple. Human beings move. That's what we do. We don't stay in the same place and we move from room to room. We move from house to house. We sometimes move from village to town, from town to town. We sometimes move from country to country. And we move. That's that's what we do. We travel, but also sometimes we move from place to place. If you look into your own family, you will, I promise, almost certainly, it's with very few exceptions, you will find people who've traveled from country to country, across the sea, different places of Britain, different parts of Europe, different parts of the world, as I say. And so I did that with my family. And, well, it was quite easy, really, because I quickly found out that my dad was born in America, which he often told us, and he used to find quite funny because there was nothing very American about him. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But if you go back in my family, you find people coming from France and Poland um, and Romania. I call them, if you like, the migrants in me. The word migrant means somebody who's moved. I mean, in a way, I just think we're all migrants. So this, in a way... Uh, is about the fact that there are migrants in me, though I was born in North London. And where am I living now? North London. I have moved (laughs) about 10 miles. Even so, it's moving. (laughs) Here we go. The migrants in me. Maybe I look as if you could spin a story at me about how threatening and dangerous migrants are. As if neither I nor you would ever dream of upping sticks and living somewhere else, and being, you know, a migrant. As if neither I nor you might suddenly find ourselves in a wrong place, at a wrong time, carrying the wrong passport, with a face that doesn't fit, and needing to get out, move, find a safe place, because, what is it, only mad, bad and sad people who do that sort of thing? And neither I nor you are mad, bad or sad enough. No, don't think you can take the migrants out of me. The migrants in me tell me about crisscrossing Europe, about crisscrossing the Atlantic. They warn me, they remind me of long, long hours at workbenches. They remind me of relatives who at one moment were as safe as houses, and the next had no houses to be safe in. Oh, Michael, actual goosebumps as as you read that. Thank you so much. That's really powerful. And the the whole book is very powerful and and moving. Migration and, and, and displacement and war and moving, these can be quite difficult things to think about, I think. Does that make them difficult to write about or in a strange way almost easier to write about? Yes, uh, I think I find that if I concentrate on anything, then it's fairly easy for me to write. Now, I don't. I, I know that may not be the same for, for children listening, that you can sometimes concentrate and it somehow gets harder and harder. The more you concentrate, the harder it is to write. 
but I, I'm very lucky. I've had lots of practice at writing uh, for a long time. So I find that if I just, people use the word home in or zoom in like a camera onto a subject, then I find I can get writing fairly soon. And I think that's partly because I've read a lot. When you read a lot, ideas come to you from other books. And it isn't, it's kind of borrowing. You might call it stealing if you like, but ideas come to you about the shape of stories. So if I tell you where the wild things are, maybe you know that story. And if yeah, you know that story, or I'll remind you a little bit, it's about a boy who's naughty and he's sent to his bedroom and then he goes away in a kind of imaginary world. He gets in a boat and he goes away to the land where the wild things are. And then he has a kind of strange adventure with them and then he gets lonely and he comes home and he goes back to his bedroom and there's his uh, supper waiting for him, even though he'd been naughty. Now, that's a, that's a story and you can enjoy it for what it is, but you can also look at what's called the structure of the story. In other words, you can sort of boil it down to its what were called its essential elements, just like you have the ingredients in making a cake egg, flour, milk, sugar. Okay. So it's the same thing with a story. So you could say, well, it's a story about somebody who does something bad, goes away and comes back and is somehow or other, everything's all right again. Now, people have been writing stories like that with that, those essential ingredients for thousands of years. The most famous one is called The Odyssey. Maybe you know a wonderful version of it by Michael Morpurgo, but there are others as well. And you know what that's about? That's about a man who does something bad, goes away, and comes back again. So, you know, that idea now is that that idea is around in our heads. So when we read a lot, these ideas come to us. So I'm saying the man who made that book, Where the Wild Things Are, he knew the Odyssey. And he borrowed the shape and structure. He borrowed the eggs, flour, milk, and sugar of that story and said, hmm, I can bake that cake. I can make a story a bit like that. So when I write, I do a bit like what Maurice Sendak did. I pick up things and borrow them. It's a bit like when you when you go to a, to a shop or a shopping mall and you have a bit of that and a bit of that. And a bit like a greengrocer's, you know, there's apples and bananas <laughs> and oranges and stuff. And you go, oh, yeah, I'll have a bit of that. Mm, no, I did, uh, apples today? Maybe not. No, I'm going to go with the bananas. So it's a bit like that. You go shopping in the shop of ideas and things that are around in the book world. So if I concentrate on a moment like something terrible that happened to my father's uncles, then though it's painful and though I'm sad, if I concentrate on it, I can find ways of writing by going into that greengrocer and picking up the the essential ingredients. It better be a grocer because that's where the, or a supermarket, where the eggs and flour and um, <laughs> milk and sugar are. So, yeah, we'll go to the greengrocer as well because we, we might put in some banana in this banana cake <laughs> I'm making. Hmm, I like banana cake a lot, actually. <laughs> it's been the year of banana cake. Hmm. And everyone has access to those shops, I suppose, is, is the thing. Everyone listening they can they can visit those shops too and and they can pick up the apples and the and the flour and and the milk for for their own stories the very first story i ever wrote i had read a story about a cat who runs away and goes about looking for somewhere to live 
and it was called Solomon the Cat. And I sat down and I wrote a story. Now, if I'd been a bit clever, I was only seven at the time. If I'd been a bit cleverer, I, I wouldn't have called it this, but I called the book, my story, I called my story Solomon the Cat. <laughs> I should have really called it perhaps Dave the Cat or Mary the Cat or something else. But instead I called it Solomon the Cat. And then really I sort of, when I look back at it, because I've got both the original book and also <laughs> my story, I should have maybe invented some more things. But um, basically I did told, retold the same story about Solomon the Cat going about looking for somewhere to um, to, to live um, and then in the end coming home. Always, always like the Odyssey again. And um, yeah, <laughs> so that was the very first story that I didn't write, if you get what I mean. So yeah, they're there, all these stories. And you know, you can change them in any way you want. I mean, you could take a story like uh, Cinderella or Hansel and Gretel, and you can do things with it. You, you can bring it up to date. You can make it very modern, or you could set it in the future. You could set it so that it's on Mars and it's aliens. You can change it however you want. So you could take a story, like, as I say, like like Cinderella, and you can make it at any time, and you can change the characters. You could make Cinderella into a boy, or you could ch change Cinderella into anything you wanted to. You could make Cinderella into an animal. And so it's an animal story. Yeah, you could do that. So we can do that. We can change stories. The other thing we can do is invent the story that comes before the story that you've just read. That's called a prequel. Or you could invent a story that comes after, and that's called a sequel. So you may have heard of Star Wars movies. Well, the person who invented the Star Wars movies, he started in the middle. He started with, I think, if I remember rightly, film number four. Then he made five, then he made six, then I think he went back and he made one, two, and three, and then he made some others. He made like 1A and 3A and 4B and all sorts of movies. So you see, he started with just one Star Wars movie. I remember going to see it with my son. I was thrilled to bits, thought it was wonderful. And I think he's still making Star Wars movies. So prequels, sequels, side stories. Imagine what happened to Cinderella. Hey, hang on, think about this. So she gets married to Prince Charming. Let's say it's set now. She gets married to Prince Charming. I don't know what happens to the two sisters. You could work that out. And then maybe Cinderella and Prince Charming have children. Uh, what happens next? Um, do they get on all right? Do, what are the children like? Do they say, Mum, what was it like when you were a girl? You see, that would be a sequel. Famously, Shakespeare wrote a play called The Tempest. And The Tempest, they're on a, an island. And there's two people living there, and there's this magician called Prospero and his daughter, Miranda. And he has to say at the beginning of the play, he has to say how he got there. So there's a little bit where you've got the prequel in the play of The Tempest. But what you could think about with The Tempest, if ever you read about, read the story, and it's a great story to read. There's a wonderful version of it, I think, by Geraldine McCochran that you could read, but there's some others. So you could read the story of The Tempest, and then come up with the sequel. Because, I'm going to, spoiler alert, what happens at the end is um, Prospero and his daughter and some other people, they leave the island, leaving the two original people living there. They're called Caliban and Ariel. Great idea for a sequel. What do they do? How do they get on? What do they do? Maybe they want to go 
and follow where prosper. Anyway, I'm running away with it. You see, so you can do that with stories and books that are already there. Oh, I hope this is giving our listeners so many ideas and getting them so excited about going off and creating their own stories and poems and prequels and sequels. I would just like to take a moment to remind the parents and the teachers listening that um, we do produce a special free resources pack to go with every episode of Author in Your Classroom so children can can take the advice that they hear and put it into action in their own stories and writing. You can download the packs from presume.com and the details are in the episode notes. Michael, we're nearly out of time, alas, but I do have a couple more questions for you if that's okay. So I'm going to pause the recording once again so that everyone can make a note of that web address, plazoom.com, and then we'll come back and talk some more. Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom with our wonderful guest today, Michael Rosen. Michael, in your introduction to On the Move, you say, poetry is a way of thinking. It gives me a space to talk about things that are personal to me, but it also lets me leave things hanging in the air to ask questions without giving too neat answers. Do you think that poetry can be a way of thinking for everybody, for anybody? Yes, poetry is a a genre, there's that word again, that is for everybody. Um, I mean, I mentioned the Odyssey, that's written as a poem. It's got a very regular rhythm and shape to it. It's a very, very long poem, but it is a poem. So this was a very popular poem. You can find, you know, people like, say, Pam Ayers, who's regularly on the radio Mm -hmm. making up poems. These are for everybody. And I stretch it a bit and say that song lyrics, the words in songs, are really, it's all part of the same world. They use the same kinds of things that poems often use, like rhyme and rhythm and repetition, choruses. This is is the world of poems and songs, and also poems and songs often, but not always, use what we call figurative writing. So figurative writing is when instead of being real and literal, we use metaphors, similes, personification, and those things where we say one thing is another. We say, pull your socks up. Well, that doesn't really mean you're going to pull your socks up. It's metaphorical. That means to say, if you were pulling your socks up, it's like starting, doing something, getting going. So that's a metaphor, pull your socks up. Well, that's a figure, as it used to be called, meaning a picture. So you create a picture out of, come on, let's get going. You create a picture of someone pulling their socks up. So poetry and song, some of you may remember that song by Pharrell called Happy. And what did he say? Happy is a house without a roof, did he say? Yeah. What? What does that mean? A house without a roof? (laughs) Well, that's a kind of metaphor, you see. He's saying being happy is like a house that maybe if you stood at the top of it, you could see out over, I don't know, over the town or something like that. Or it may be that the house has got rid of the roof because it's fed up with having a roof on. It's up to you to work it out. Now, when I say that, it's up to you to work it out. That's what I mean about poems 
leaving spaces for readers to figure it out. I mean, you might want to spend a little bit of time. You can go on the internet, find the words for Pharrell's song, Happy, and just talk about the metaphors that he creates, and you'll find that you won't agree. Everybody in the class will find different reasons why he said this and said that and said happy is this. And the great thing is, there isn't a right answer. Is there a right answer to why Pharrell wrote happy is like a house, happy is a house without a roof? No, there's lots of answers. I came up with two. You might come up with all sorts of other ones. And that's the great thing about poetry. I don't even know if Pharrell himself would know necessarily. <laughs> exactly. Michael, I, I do think that a lot of children and, and young people, and actually a good number of grown-ups too, tend to think of, of this genre, as, as you called it, of, of poetry as a very special and hard-to-understand sort of writing that you, you have to work at, you have to translate it and, and code it and 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 identify exactly what it, each bit means, rather than the kind of writing that you just you know, curl up with and enjoy like like you might a good story. D do you think poetry is different from other kinds of writing? I do think poetry is different from other kinds of writing. Apart from anything else, there's hundreds of different kinds of poem. You only have to open a, what we call an anthology, a book of many different kinds of poems written by different people to very quickly see that you know, across the world or across time or even just across the country, uh, people write in very different ways. So, you know, there's a poem like what, a little rhyme that I knew as a child, Inky Pinky Ponky, the farmer bought a donkey. The donkey died, the farmer cried, Inky Pinky Ponky. Now, there's a, a little rhyme. There's, there's nothing like, say, that poem I read, The Migrants in Me, but we call them both poetry. Yeah. And that little rhyme, on the one hand, it's very simple. And maybe the migrants in me sounds a little bit hard. But actually, if you explore that Inky Pinky poem, you suddenly start finding out some quite strange things. I mean, normally when we say something died, somebody or an animal died, that's sad. But somehow or other, that poem sounds funny. So is it a sort of bittersweet poem, a bit like you get sweet and sour chicken at the, at the, at the Chinese restaurant? Is it sort of a mixture of flavours in there? So something as simple and as a bit giggly like that, and yet at the same time, it's a bit mysterious. And if you look at nursery rhymes, they often are a bit like that. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Why couldn't they put him together again? Why did he fall off the wall? Who are the king's horses and king's men? Who, do, who, who are they? And, and you, you suddenly, the moment you ask questions, it all starts getting intriguing. Why did he fall off the wall or did someone push him? and so on. So those are even, they're supposed to be simple. And then you have other poems that are quite hard. I think the thing I warn against is ever thinking that a poem is like an egg box. And in an egg box, you've got six or 12 eggs and you take them out and that's it. It's empty. And that some people, the way they treat poems is as if it's an egg box and you just take out the meaning. You take out the egg and that's it. But even with an egg box, you can't do much with an egg until you cook it. So it's a bit like that with a poem, that you take stuff out of it and then you do stuff with it in your mind. So you can do all sorts of things with poems. I've said one of the nicest things is to ask questions. You might not even answer them. And another game that I play is called Secret Strings. All poems have secret strings in them. So if you put the poem down on a piece of paper 
and you can find one bit of the poem will link to another bit of a poem with a secret string. So you can be a poem detective. So if I say, down behind the dustbin, I met a dog called Jim. He didn't know me. I didn't know him. Well, immediately there's one secret string there, and that's Jim and him. That's the obvious one. That's the rhyming. There's another one, down behind the dustbin. Duh, duh. We call that alliteration. And then we've got, down behind the dustbin, I met a dog called Jim. He didn't know me. I didn't know him. There's a he and me and I and him. They're sort of linked, aren't they? In fact, if there's a joke in that poem, someone once said to me, how did you know his name was Jim then? Hmm. That's quite a problem, isn't it? But the I and he and the me and that, that, those are called pronouns. And they're kind of, I've got the I and the he and the me and the him, that sort of thing. That's almost like you could draw lines between them. It's almost like a, well, you could even do, do I say, like a, a St. Andrew's cross. You know, you could do a diagonal cross on there to, to do that. So that would be some more secret strings. So even with a silly little poem like that, but also you find pictures in poems. You find pictures of things that are similar and pictures of things that contrast what we call opposites. So you could have a poem about day and night, and there's lots of light things in a poem and lots of dark things in a poem. And that would be contrasts that you could find. So that's a lovely way to unlock meanings in poems as a game. Because really reading, I have to say, all reading is a bit like a game. You agree to play the game. You agree to go onto the pitch and stick to the rules. If it's football, you don't pick it up. So in a way, you agree to play the game. So one of the games in Inky Pinky Ponky is to make a rhythm, as you say it. Inky Pinky Ponky, the farmer bought a donkey. And as you know from rap music, again, they have rhythms, don't they? And things like that. So that's agreeing to play the game. So one of the fun things you can have with poems is finding what game is being played. That sounds like such a joyful way to to play with with poetry and and find out more about poems and and enjoy them more and i hope that our listeners are very keen to go and put that in action I'm afraid we're we're coming to the end of our time, Michael. There's so much more that I was going to ask you about and that I wanted to talk to you about. And maybe we might even be able to have you back another time and we can we can carry on talking. But for now, I'm going to say thank you, Michael, so much for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thanks for having me, Helen. And I'd love to come back. It's an absolute pleasure. And to all the teachers and parents and children listening, I do hope that you'll seek out On The Move and share the poems in it. I would also hugely recommend reading Michael's memoir, The Missing Two, which is the true story of what happened to his family during World War Two. Oh, and if you haven't already bookmarked Michael's YouTube channel, you absolutely must because there are over 200 fantastic videos there of Michael performing his own poems and they will keep you captivated and delighted for hours. You'll find the link on his website, michaelrosen.co.uk. And we'll be back soon with another author in your classroom. See you then. Author in Your Classroom is brought to you by Plazoom. 
where we are passionate about making great literacy lessons easy with inspiring, ready-to-go resources created by teachers to cover the whole of the primary curriculum. So, whether you're a teacher desperate for SATS revision that pupils will actually enjoy, a parent just as baffled by fronted adverbials as your child, or anyone looking for fun ways to keep children reading and writing during the summer holidays, we've got hundreds of brilliant ideas to explore. Take a look for yourself at plazoom.com, where you can sign up to our newsletter and be the first to find out about our special offers and the new resources that are added to the site every single week. Every episode of Author in Your Classroom is packed with writing advice and inspiration from some of the world's best-loved children's writers. Plus, there are free activities and worksheets based on each author's work to spark children's imagination on plazoom.com. Just check the episode notes for links and more. You can subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. We want to reach as many pupils in as many classrooms as possible, so please do give us a rating or a review, but above all, tell your colleagues about us and help spread the word. We know that a love of reading opens doors, not just to success at school and beyond, but to a lifetime of excitement, adventure and discovery. Let us help you make it happen with Author in Your Classroom and Plazoom.